I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, the host of this podcast, and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. And of course, if there was a drum roll, I'd put it in right now, because we've got my good friend and co-worker here, Sean Latimer, for today's Thoughts on Money podcast. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. And Sean, today we are going to be talking about an article that we've been talking about writing for a while, and it's called uh, Easier Said Than Done. I, I love this article. I'm excited. What do you love about this article? So it's really funny because when someone says contrarian, and listeners, you'll read about this, but it can mean so many different things in so many different ways. It, it can mean that someone's like a perma bear and they they think that it's going to be the end of the world or they're doomsdayers. Like a half glass full kind of person? Exactly. And it could also mean just someone who invests differently than the norm. And that's probably what we hear the most. Um, I know that when we talk about our investment committee, the way that we invest in dividend growth companies, a lot of people say, I love your contrarian view. Well, in our eyes or in my eyes, I have a lot of conviction in the way we invest. I don't feel like a contrarian. But if you compare it to what you see on TV and maybe a high-flying tech stock or something that's more sexy or exciting, we are contrarians. So I just like the article because it can mean so many different things to different people. You know, there's a quote that I should have put in this article, but I didn't. It's from Howard Marks, and I love that how he talks about being a contrarian. He says, you can't just be a contrarian. In order to be successful, you have to think differently. And, and be right. Be right, exactly. <laughs> so uh, there are people out there that are glass half full, and that's kind of their bent, and, and they're always uh, bring that and to the table and they're the kind of person that you'd say you know even a broken clock is right twice a day yeah right is that works (laughs) yeah that's right that there is a difference there and we open the article with kind of a funny way to talk about it but this idea of having a time machine because i love the movie back to the future it's one of my favorite movies of all time did you know that about me i did not have you seen the movie i have have you watched all three i see i don't remember him i it's not one of those movies that i would know like every word of it but i remember the plot and the ending (laughs) yeah i love the movie my wife and i we recently watched all three in a row uh, again and it's actually funny there was something on netflix or somewhere i don't remember i watched it but it was talking about this annual gathering of people that love this movie and they reenact the whole scene and everybody dresses (laughs) up it was nothing i would ever do. now you're in a cult (laughs) exactly nothing i would ever do but i I thought it was kind of funny when i watched it but anyway this idea of a time machine we, we talked about hey what if we had a time machine that could only go back three months we jump in, push the button, pull the lever, zoom. All of a sudden, we're in the beginning of September. We go and we look at the newspapers, look at all the headlines. We jump on social media, we read all the posts, and we go to a coffee shop and kind of hear what conversations are happening. What is everybody talking about? Politics. Yeah. It's September. November's around the corner. Talking about how this election is going to go, who's going to win, what it's going to mean to our country. And kind of the fake scenario I played out in the article is – what happens if you jump in that time machine, you go back to September, and you start polling? And you're not polling to figure out who's going to win the election. You're polling to figure out what people think is going to happen in the stock market in November. Oh, that'd be fun. And what are people going to say? Doomsday. Doomsday, absolutely. Right? Most polarizing election we've ever heard of. This idea that... Uh, this balance of power is going to shift one way or the other. It's either going to put a smile on some people's face and cause riots in the streets for other people. So there's no way that anything positive could come from November. You know what's interesting is in a past article and podcast, remember when we talked about the guy who had uh, 
take the averages, and then he guessed how much the ox weighed. Yeah. And we talked about how efficient... It comes from this uh, book called uh, The Wisdom of Crowds. Yeah. We talked about how efficient the market is, how it prices things in. Well, maybe it's like another level of efficiency that we can't even realize, because if we did that same thing, and we pulled these people, and everyone said it was going to be bad... The thought would be, well, then the market's efficient and it will probably be bad because that's the average response. But no, no, no. What you're missing there, and I talk about in the article, is that markets don't respond to bad news or good news. Oh, so because it's not sentiment driven, it's based it, off earnings. No, it is sentiment driven. Is the markets are going to respond not to good news or bad news? They're going to respond to better than expected news or worse than expected news. True. So if you've ever experienced something in life call it getting a root canal, right? <laughs> no, I'm being serious because I remember people telling me before I got my first root canal, that was always what somebody used to describe the most negative thing in the world, Yeah. right? Oh man, it's like getting a root canal. Yeah, that's Guess true. Guess what? I got a root canal. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> like I wouldn't even, it wouldn't even be my top 10 most painful or, or frustrating or depressing experience I've ever had. It doesn't even, it's a blip on the radar. A, a root canal is not that bad. You know what I mean? But I went into it with all this anxiety. Thinking it was going to be awful. Exactly. Worst case scenario. I hate this. And it could be a bad example because maybe people think like, oh, why is he using root canal? Use whatever you want. Someone's at home right now who had a terrible root canal and they're like, Trevor, you don't know. (laughs) Whatever. But all of us have had an experience that we had anxiety about going into it. And guess what? You probably went through that experience like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? So for me, maybe it was asking my father-in-law if I could marry my wife. (laughs) Very anxious about it. It's a funny story I'll save for another time because it was that bad. That's okay. I'm pretty sure mine was similar. So Yeah, it was uh, – yeah, we, we have similar father But we made it. We made it, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, the, the point I'm making, and I'm going to say that point again, is that markets don't react to good news or bad news. They react to better than expected or worse than expected. Once we got past that November moment, the market realized there was going to be kind of gridlock, which the market likes, and kind of this uh, split – balance of power or whatever, however you want to describe it, it was off to the races. Now, go back to our time machine. We're back in September, October, asking people what they think market is going to be in November. Everybody says doomsday. Let me read a quote from David's uh, recent DC Today. It was the best November for the Dow since 1928. It's pretty good. I'll read that again. It was the best November for the Dow since 1928 and the best November for the S&P 500 since 1950. It was the best month period for the Dow Jones since 1987. That is amazing. That is not what people expected. If you were trying to portray that idea back in our little time machine, there is absolutely no way anybody would believe what you were saying. No way. So we now understand markets don't always behave like you think they're going to behave. And if you see this herd mentality or this overwhelming consensus happening, it's probably an overextension one way or the other. How do those overextensions work? One way might be going towards euphoria, and the other way might go towards fear. Those overextensions never live up to what people think they're going to. So November was an overextended, fearful, monster-in-the-closet moment. There's a chance now we might be going the other direction as markets took off in November um, and 
and there's a, there's a chance at some point that there can be overextension into euphoria. I don't think we're there yet. I think markets are still fairly valued, but you can look back in history and see those points in time, like as an example, um, housing in 2007, yeah. or tech stocks in uh, the early late nineties, yeah, or the Nifty Fifty. If we go back further, um, there's always this idea that people get a little bit more euphoric. Are there things in the market today that are euphoric? There is, but those bubbles are still getting bigger, so we can't talk about them yet because we don't talk about them until they actually pop, right. and then we can see it in hindsight. Right. No, that's true. And those bubbles, when they do pop, then it's there's always those people that say in hindsight, like, "Oh, I saw this coming," but uh, if you had that much conviction, you would have, you know, proclaimed it or made the trade or been in the news about it. Yeah, and that brings us to this idea: is that what does it mean to be a contrarian? Like. What if you did say, you know what? I actually don't think November is going to be as bad as people think. And that alone is an investment thesis. Yeah. Right? It's you're saying, I want to invest into this because I think the pessimism is greater than the reality. Could it still be bad news, supposedly? Yeah. But as long as it wasn't as bad as is expected, there is some money to be made there as an investor. I think that's a good segue, and hopefully I'm not taking wind out of your sails on the article, but that's the whole point of having an investment policy statement or an investment philosophy and sticking to it, because no one's telling anyone to try and time it. Or I'm just picturing a bell curve, and there's a small percentage of people that say, hey, you know what? Maybe November will be good. They're definitely the contrarian of the group, right? Well, when you say invest into it, wouldn't it be a much better feeling to stay the course and you were invested than to try and make that agonizing decision if you deploy cash or not yeah so i love that you said that in the concluding paragraphs one thing i talk about is this idea that stay the course and it feels really cliche and you know your advisor is going to tell you that and you hate hearing it (laughs) but guess what what does that actually mean stay the course what is the course the course means that you've done a financial plan or you've done a financial plan which has laid out the path (laughs) and the path is the course so if you've already planned that there are going to be times that Markets do things you didn't expect because we live in a world of uncertainty, but you've already crafted that plan and it fits within, what do you want to call it, the guardrails or the disparity of expectations that you feel or dispersion of expectations that you feel could happen, then yeah, stay the course unless there's something critical that happens that makes you pivot. We're in one of those critical moments slightly right now. Like That's why the Bonsa Group did Operation Magnify. This idea that you're in a world where interest rates have basically zeroed out and Mm -hmm. there's not a clear understanding of of how they can come out of this based on the debt of the government, the culture and addiction to low interest rates, that that might be a reason to pivot a portfolio and slightly change allocations – to understand the risk-reward structure of safe bonds, boring bonds, isn't like it used to be over the last 30 years. So unless there's this huge environmental change, the advice usually is stay the course. Yeah, that's right. Now, we're talking about this idea of being a contrarian, and one thing I included in the article is if we were polling people still, and we go around, whether they're in finance or not in finance, and we just ask them, hey, who's the best investor of all time? Trevor Cummings. Perfect. I love that you gave that answer. <laughs> I'm guessing that the common answer that we're going to get is... Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. I think 
pop culture. Whether you're in finance or not, you know that name and you associate that with investing. And it's probably a fairly given uh, title, right? We call Michael Jordan the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And there is an argument to say that Warren Buffett is the GOAT when it comes to investing because he has a long enough track record of investing where you can see a really strong batting average and there is skill that's greater than luck. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about him is that he's been investing for 80 years and it feels like hyperbole when I say that. It's like, oh, whatever, he's making a joke or an exaggeration. No, he says that he bought his first stock at 11 years old and the guy's 90 years old and he's still doing it on a daily basis. Yeah. So there's something to be said about the wisdom that you gather in that 80 years. And Warren Buffett is a contrarian. And when he talks about being a contrarian, he's different than kind of what you alluded to of this idea of just being uh, an all-time pessimist and going against the herd and, and whatever is consensus, you do the opposite. He doesn't do that. He relates his style of investing to baseball. He talks about Ted Williams, one of the greatest batters of all time, and this idea that you just have to wait for the fat pitch. And you're going to skip over a lot of things that are not in your sweet spot but then when it's in the sweet spot, you swing as hard as you possibly can, and you hit home runs when that opportunity comes, right? Otherwise, you're totally content to get singles and doubles. What I mean by that is he looks for opportunities where his contrarian view can very much benefit him. Yeah, because he's typically looking for like deep value, right? Exactly. So let's look at this year. We're talking about the greatest investor of all time. And if we wanted to compare his relevant performance, he owns a holding company called Berkshire Hathaway, and you start to compare that to the market. At the time of writing this article, they were trailing the market as in the S&P 500 by double digits. That doesn't feel like the greatest investor of all time. But guess what? His style is going to come in and out of favor sometimes. Yeah, didn't it happen before too, uh, during the tech bubble? Oh, it's happened a ton of times, right? Yeah. He, every uh, every letter he publishes, his annual letter, the very first page, you can look at the track record of his fund. You can look at it in different measurements like price to book. And you can also look at it compared to the market. And you can look back in time. Now, if you go to the very bottom, you see just this crazy, incredible relative performance that's been compounding over a lot of years. But if you go pick little years and you look at the differences, there's some years that you're probably like, wow, that's probably a really hard year for him. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like those were years where he was on the cover of a magazine saying that like his his style's dead. He can't invest anymore. And, you know, you and I are sports fans. There's athletes that we've we've seen about that like, oh, you know, this guy should hang it up. Uh, maybe Tom Brady's probably had those cover moments. Yeah. But then, you know, he's in his 40s winning a Super Bowl. Yeah. So there's some resiliency to it. But anyway, the thing that Warren Buffett always touches on is, again, like you said, he's not trying to be a contrarian just for the sake of being a contrarian. He really focuses on temperament. He's basically saying a great investor isn't somebody with the highest IQ. It's somebody with the greatest temperament that regardless of what's happening, you know, his underperformance by double digits, what does he do? He doesn't change his style of nope. investing. He doesn't try to rethink what he's doing. He does the exact same thing. He stays the course. He does what's worked for 80, 80 years. years. Yeah. And that is, there's is something to be said, especially in today's culture, because I feel like peer pressure has always been around, right? But I feel like it's so in your face now with social media that if your friends and your family and everyone you know is telling you you're wrong, you should do it a different way, 
it's probably pretty easy to feel that pressure and succumb to it. But it's impressive, especially in the investment world. And you could even argue, you know, you're 90 years old. Things are different now. Things are. You should adapt. Yeah, you should change. You should evolve. But you know, I think we'll uh, we'll see when all is said and done. You ever read your kids that book, Pete the Cat? Yeah. Okay, so this is Trevor, always going off on a far tangent to make an analogy. But I read that book to my son Shepard a lot, and there's a lot of different versions of the book. But one, the one is it I the read, dance one. The one I read is the one where like he keeps stepping in different puddles and it changes the color. Oh, of his gotcha. Shoes. So basically, for our listeners, the way that this book works is there's Pete the cat, and he's walking along and he's got white shoes and he sings this song how he loves his white shoes. And then all of a sudden he steps in a puddle of strawberries and it turns his shoes red. And then what does he sing? He sings that he loves his red shoes. And then he steps in blueberries and they turn blue and mud and it turns brown and then water and they become wet. And he always keeps singing his song. And the, the moral of the story of the last page, it says, no matter what you step in, keep singing your song and doing your thing, right? And it was this idea that none of the outside circumstances or opinions or whatever were going to change him from his temperament. Did you know that you were going to bring up Pete the Cat when we started this? I had no idea I was going to bring up Pete the Cat. Actually, I might have thought about it. That did fit pretty well, though. That was good. Fair enough. So now we could say this like, oh, you know, man, Warren Buffett does this and this is his attitude. But like you always say is people vote with their dollars, right? Yeah. So what did he do in the most recent filing for Berkshire Hathaway? He He, bought back more stock, his own company stock, than they've ever done in history. It's like $9 billion. Because they're on sale. Yeah, exactly. Because why would an investment manager buy their own stock back? Because he believes that the market is not fairly valuing that security. So if you want to talk about somebody that's contrarian, that is the most contrarian thing that you can do. Oh, yeah. We, we talked about this uh, yesterday when we were talking about the article that you're going to write. And it's true because when people go to elect for their 401k contributions and what they're going to invest in, what's the first thing they look at? Performance. So which one did the best? I want that. Exactly. There's a, there's a column in your 401k benefits guide that shows the one-year performance or five-year or 10-year. You don't know the difference between ABC and XYZ and, and all these. What do you do? You just look down the performance and you grab the best thing that's done good in the past. Exactly. So if it's done well in the past, that means it's probably at or above fair market value today. It's fair to say, right? Yeah, you're probably shopping things that are a little bit more expensive than they should be because they've had a track record of probably doing a little bit better than one would be expected. And there are investment ideas out there like uh, Dow's of the Dog. You remember that? I don't know if we're allowed to say that on here. Dog's of the Dow. Dog's of the Dow, yeah. And and the idea was you just find the best value. Wasn't it the underperforming 10 stocks? No, so good question. So you go back, there was a, a gentleman named Jim O'Shaughnessy that wrote a book called What Works on Wall Street. And it was kind of the first attempt to create quantitative strategies, meaning strategies that were rules-based that you wouldn't be interacting or, or making differences. And you can kind of backtest these things and see how they worked into the future. So the dogs of the Dow was this idea that you would buy, you look at the Dow Jones, which was made up of 30 stocks, and you'd pick the top 10 yielding securities meaning that their their dividend yield was the highest. And typically because the price went down. Exactly. So how could a yield go up is because the price is depressed. So this idea of dogs of the Dow is that, according to the theory, is that all of these companies that are well-established 
probably have what we'll call like a natural yield, meaning that's where their yield normally is. So when you have a yield that is above its natural yield, it is a signal for an undervalued security. So if you do this dogs the Dow quantitative strategy and you go back test and all that, it's proven to do really well. But what that is saying, like you said, is kind of it's exercising a contrarian view. Right. Because the market has told you that people are not excited about these investments. Therefore, the dividend that they're paying out creates a higher yield than the price is representing. So if you buy them, you have this opportunity. I mean, this is not a recommendation, but this is how the strategy works, is that you would have this opportunity to not only capture that income, but also get that price appreciation back to fair value. And there clearly isn't a pattern in the market or everyone would just do that. (laughs) No, exactly. But it's not that everyone would do that because that is a really good segue to this last section that I talked about that's really important. And that section is titled, Investing is Not Easy. Yeah. You know, there are a ton of people that are new to investing, retail traders, whatever you call it, people that are, you know, work from home right now and are taking an hour or so on Robinhood or these different apps to to start to buy stocks and they're using this as a hobby. And they might be in their bedrooms right now saying, man, I am kicking Warren (laughs) This is easy. (laughs) But right now, right? And it's not easy. It's easy when you're winning. Yeah. It's really hard when you're losing. That's this idea of temperament, right? It takes a lot of fortitude a lot of conviction, a lot of guts, and probably 80 years of experience to say, I'm going to double down on myself because I believe this is what investing is. I believe that I understand clearly what these companies are worth. And we're living in a time right now where valuation doesn't seem like it matters anymore. And I use this joke a lot, but it's the best way for me to describe it is – if I brought you a cheeseburger right now and you took a bite and it was the best tasting cheeseburger ever, like you couldn't imagine that a cheeseburger could taste this good. And you're like, this is amazing. How much does this cost? And I told you $30,000. You'd laugh. <laughs> Worth it. No. Just you would, kidding. <laughs> yeah, we love cheeseburgers. Uh, you would never pay for that cheeseburger. No. So did that mean that it wasn't the greatest cheeseburger in the world? No, it was the greatest cheeseburger in the world at the worst price in the world. Right. So people don't understand that right now because they want to argue, if they don't have a deep experience in investing, this is a great company. That's why I want to own this stock. This company is going to change the world. All those things can be true. It doesn't mean that the price of the stock is also a great buy. And Warren Buffett like many other investors that have a deep and rich history in studying markets, understand that valuation matters. But there is a stench right now out out there, I'm being honest, and this aroma of arrogance Mm -hmm. amongst people to say investing is easy. Yeah, one thing I will say is this year is unique too because it's kind of a vulnerable moment, so it'll be the last time, or the last point I make on the, the podcast, but in March and April of this year, even after experiencing a financial crisis and working in this industry, it was one of the hardest times in my career because you have to be this kind of beacon of hope for people on a day in and day out basis where they're asking you questions about what's going to happen. And the answer is, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know that we have a plan and we're going to stick to our plan because of times like this. 
And in hindsight, it's easy to say, oh, I knew there'd be a recovery and I knew that things would work out and I knew that this wouldn't happen and that wouldn't happen. But when you're in the moment and you have to kind of be that shoulder to lean on for all these clients every day, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, uh, I don't know, heavy weighted experience. Yeah. I mean, at the Bonser Group here, as, as long as all things work out, we're planning a client event for next year on March 23rd. Yeah. And we're using that date very specifically because we want to be able to take a one-year look back to say March 23rd, 2020 was the bottom of the market. One year later, where are we now? I don't know where we're going to be on that date, but I'll tell you the trajectory and everything looks like we're going to be pretty far off that bottom. Yeah. And recoveries aren't always that fast, but that's why we have to be really careful and make sure that we stay the course because like you said, you have to be that beacon of hope, but you also admit that you don't have that crystal ball. Right. So I think what we're saying here is there's a lot of conversations to be had of people that might be new to investing or maybe they've taken it up as more of a hobby recently and maybe they've done really well. And kudos to you. That's amazing. I, it's great. The problem is that it will encourage some people to take bigger risks and have greater confidence than probably is deserved. And that scares me. And I wrote about an article, there's an opposite person that hears that their friends are doing this, that they want to take a try at it. So they try it and they don't have the best timing. And they start out with a really negative experience. And then they get a chip on their shoulder that says, hey, markets are rigged. This is gambling. I don't want to do this. Both paths lead people to a grossly misinterpretation of investing. And I think that's our job as financial advisors is to come alongside people and refocus them on this importance of planning and why we're doing this whole thing and understand how valuation works, how you build a portfolio, and how you lay out that course that at one point I'm going to tell you that you have to stay the course. Yeah. So I think the big takeaways for people is that investing can be a very humbling exercise, and that's okay. But if you have a plan and you have a second pair of eyes like a financial advisor, an expert in the industry, to basically sign off, stamp approval, to be your beacon of hope in times of trouble, you're going to have a lot higher likelihood of the success you're trying to achieve than trying to go out it alone and shoot from the hip. Well said. Thank you. I like how we always we always end, we always have this podcast kind of like look at each other, smiling, and be like, we probably should wrap this up. And yeah. kind of like nodding at each other. Okay. Do you have anything else to say? Do you have anything else to say? Well, I will wrap it up on my end there. Is there anything else you want to lead our listeners with? Nope. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks for joining us. This is an exciting time. I love this time of the year. Uh, I will end with this. Like, I love the holiday season. Before we started this podcast, we were talking about how we watch Christmas movies with our family. We have traditions and cookies and get friend gatherings. So I know this year could very well be different for everybody. But my encouragement is to you is to find the spirit in whenever you can with the people that you're with. Um, extra hugs. Or wait, socially distance hugs. Yeah, uh, exactly. Whatever. Just love one another in a powerful way and enjoy this season. And um, we'll ask that you rate the podcast, leave comments. You can always email us. I'm T. Cummings at thebonsaigroup.com. Sean is S. Latimer at thebonsaigroup.com. And of course, we'll be back next week with more of our thoughts on money. The 
Avanti Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.